Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Here you go. Here you go. So this is one of my favorite times of year, right? Spring training starting, the players have reported. And I always thought to myself during, I had 18 spring trainings, and the 18th one was so different than the first one. You sort of know your way around. You know what to expect. And I wanted to give to you, people who are listening to Nothing Personal, watching, I appreciate that you download and subscribe. I wanted to do really a three-part series on spring training. And the first part I wanted to do was I wanted to give you an inside look as to what spring training is for me as a member of the front office. What is it as president of a team? What do I do? So what you may think is you just sit around and watch games or go to spring training games or maybe not even go to spring training games. What's the purpose of spring training? Is it too long? Is it too short? What kind of money is there to be made? What are decisions that have to be made? So I wanted to talk and tell you spring training through the eyes of the front office. So we get spring training dates, believe it or not, and the full season schedule during the previous season. So we know what's going on with spring training, let's say in August or September of the previous season. And what we do is we look at when the first game is, and then we count backwards Because under the collective bargaining agreement, you can only be on the field X number of days prior to the first game and no sooner. Why do you think that on a random day, 17 out of 30 teams report to spring training? And the next day, the 13 remaining teams report to spring training. The reason is that's the first day you can do it. In my old days, I would have our team report the last possible day. that you're allowed to report because every day you're in spring training, it costs you money. You actually have to pay players a per diem. You have to pay for them to live. So from my standpoint, I always thought, even in my first year in baseball, that spring training was too long. Why not shorten it? And the argument was always made to me by GMs. I want to be on the field. I don't want to be watching other teams work out and have other teams season, quote unquote, beginning while we're sitting here waiting to report. I never found that to be too compelling, but as I got older, I definitely became less rigorous in terms of reporting. One of the big misnomers is that uh, front office people are not focused at all on anything that's going on the field. So there's three things when I am appearing in spring training first day. First, the pitchers and catchers report. And as a front office person, we have a meeting and I'm at that meeting and the meeting's in the clubhouse before the first pitchers and catchers workout. And that meeting is to go through the rules and to make introductions. So you've got pitchers and catchers in the room. You've got the manager who leads the meeting. And every manager that I had over, over the years always led the meeting differently. But the one thing in common is they do lead the meeting. 
And in the meeting, they start by introducing, here's the coaches, here's the trainers, here's the traveling secretary, and each person who's introduced says a few words. And then it goes to me, and here's your team president, and I would talk before the GM would talk. And after, I can't remember what I do it after the clubhouse manager, the clubhouse speech is always the same. Your jocks are always going to be hung in your locker. Please put them on a hanger and put them in the laundry. Try to be clean and don't forget to tip. That's sort of the rules of the clubhouse. So what I would say to the pitchers and catchers day one is, listen, no matter what you've read about the season, and we would always come in as underdogs, always come in as people having no expectations, and I would save my main speech for when it was a full team reporting, which would happen four days later when the position players come. But to the pitchers and catchers, I would give them an inkling of what I was going to say three days later. And that was, listen, ignore what the expectations are. Ignore the noise surrounding our team, any distraction, and go out and simply do your job. Because if you do your job and the person to your left and right does his job, then we actually have a chance to compete. And I would leave it at that. So the decisions that we would make during the course of spring training is that I personally use spring training not as a way to evaluate players. When I first got into the game, I would use it as a way to evaluate GMs and evaluate myself. I stupidly thought that winning spring training games mattered. And I remember very well my first win of spring training in the 2000 season. I texted our GM, Jim Beatty, and I said, hey, we're 1-0. And he, he responded to me. Or he, I said it to him, we were sitting and watching the game, and he sort of looked at me, because that was the first game we had experienced together, and he said, David, you're not going to survive 192 games, because 162 regular season, and then 30 in, the sp in spring training. But I was so excited to win, I thought it mattered. It turns out, winning in spring training matters only to teams who feel as though they're not going to have a winning regular season so they can rely on spring training to instill a winning culture and the possibility of winning. It turns out there is zero correlation, zero at all, between winning in spring training and winning in the regular season. Did you know that the first week of spring training, the first week of games that not only do players not know the final score of the game, the majority of players who start the game and get one or two at-bats are not even there when the game ends. I did not know this when I first got into baseball, and I would go back to the clubhouse at the end of the of spring training game because I would sit through the whole thing, and I would wonder where everybody was. It turns out when players are done with their work, meaning they get their one or two at-bats, they play two or three innings in the field, they go to the clubhouse, they literally shower and leave, gone. If you asked a player, and I've asked players throughout the years, hey, what's our record in spring training? I get laughed at. And then I realized it has nothing to do with spring training. Here's a little nugget for y'all. Uh, players don't know the record of their team during the regular season. If you ask a player on the team, hey, what's our record? They will say, and I figured they would know because I always knew our record. I figured they would say, yeah, we're 62 and 47 or we're 45 and 48. They have no idea. Literally, hey, do you know uh, where we're playing next? What, where the road trip is? No idea. Hey, do you know who we're playing next at home during this homestand? No idea. I was blown away by that. So the first week of spring training, my focus and the focus of all the front office is you are trying to make sure that the coaching staff is organized and that the players who you want to see play are getting enough reps during games. 
the front office will tell the manager, listen, we're looking for a 25th or 26th guy. We have to get a 12th person in the bullpen. We have a fifth starter competition going on, so we need to make sure that the following three guys get the following number of innings. We tell the manager and coaches what we need in terms of player appearances during the course of spring training, and it starts to line up during the first week of games. One of the great things that the media does is they spend time during spring training speculating who the opening day starter is going to be. And then it gets announced and it becomes this big deal in baseball. Well, we know before the spring training begins who our opening day starter is, and we actually set up the pitching so that it works perfectly that the opening day starter will be on regular rest opening day. By the way, anyone who knows math has the ability to figure it out as well. Why more people don't is beyond me. So the first week we spend and we're making sure the manager is doing his job, the coaches are doing their job, and that we're seeing what we want to see. But we're not looking for results. So we're not looking for when, we just, when we're trying to choose a fourth outfielder, let's say, we're not saying, hey, if one guy hits 350 during spring training and one, I hit, one guy hits 250 during spring training, we're going with the man who hits 350. That is not what we're looking for. We're looking for what we project that player to be in terms of fitting in with the general makeup of our team, both inside the clubhouse and out. We are looking at who we believe has the best chance to give us the best chance to win. But we're also looking at something that managers and coaches are not, and that is we're looking at the contracts of the players who are fighting for these fourth and fifth starter or for the last spot in the bullpen or on the bench. Because there's some veterans who we would bring into spring training. When you read an article, and you're going to read a lot of them, right, through the start of the regular season, we're bringing in John Doe on a minor league contract, but if he makes the team, he'll get a million dollars. And he has an opt-out, let's say, in the middle of March. That's very common. We would bring in a bunch of veteran players, like Carlos Gonzalez was recently signed. Same thing. If he makes the team, he gets seven hundred and fifty grand. If he doesn't, he makes nothing. So we would go back and say, listen, if we have a choice between two players and one of the players is going to be making a million dollars, or we could choose a player who's going to be making the minimum, which at the time was whether it's two hundred grand or now it's five hundred grand. I would always tend to go for the 500 grand guy. Why not save the $500,000 if you are not sure that the veteran is actually going to be wholly additive? And then, by the way, once we add a player to the big league roster, we make him sign what's called the 45-day consent form, which means that we can get rid of that player within 45 days and his contract will not be guaranteed for the whole year. We just have to pay him for the amount he played. And any player who doesn't agree to that, because as a player, you don't have to, no problem. If you don't agree to sign the 45-day rule, then we're just not going to add you to our roster. We actually had a player in 2003, I wish I could remember who, who we were going to put on the World Series team, and he would not sign the 45-day advance consent, which means we, you are advan- you're consenting in advance that you can be released or sent down without getting fully paid. And he didn't make the team because of it. And we ended up going on to win the World Series. So during the course of the first week, we're just beginning to watch things unfold. Players are getting one or two at-bats, no problem. But then as we get into the final two weeks of spring training, then what the front office is doing is getting in full season mode. We've made the decisions that we're going to make halfway into spring training. Most decisions are already made. 
Is it possible once in a blue moon that a player will do something on the field during spring training in the last two weeks that will change our mind with what we're going to do? Sometimes, but not very often. There was a player named Abraham Nunez many years ago. You may not remember him. He's not memorable, except for the fact that he set a record for Grapefruit League home runs one year for the Marlins. He was, I think he hit like 12 home runs during the course of spring training. It was amazing. People thought he was going to hit 50 home runs and that he was going to be the greatest ever player. And we just sort of, I think we may have added him to the team. He was going to be on the team to begin with, but of course it didn't work out for him in that way. Because spring training stats are just not real. It's not necessary. I'm sitting here. Am I right? Is it Abraham Nunez? Is he anywhere in the Google as having a great spring training? It turns out, wait, I'm getting info given to me. Of course, I'm not with Coca because Coca would not want to participate in a solely spring training bonus pod. So anyway, it was Abraham Nunez, but I'm not getting full confirmation. So it's to me, from a front office standpoint, I just want to leave you with this, just a little nugget, a little spring training. We take the time to be respectful of the players in that we are not leading any of the players on. They know very well what they're competing for. We communicate with them when it's not going to work out. We give them a chance to get a job on another team if we're going to release them before the end of spring training. We take the benefit of having as much time with each player as possible. When we reassign a player, when we cut a player, let's say, we bring them in the office, we talk to them, we explain what we're doing, why we're doing it. We decide as an organization what is the best way for our team to be made up, and it's not just taking your 25 best guys. Some people may say that, but that's not the case. What every team does is they put together a team that they believe together has the best chance to win in the most financially responsible way. The Yankees do it, the Marlins do it, and every team in between. So as we start this spring training, I look at all the people in the front office and they're not sitting there doing nothing, but I can tell you that a lot of the work, a lot of the work is done in advance. And that's spring training through the eyes of the front office. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.